Amen. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, worship team. <clears throat> Glad to see how flexible you guys are when uh, several key people are gone. Um, I think maybe we should have worked something like nomadic or semi-nomadic into our church name, don't you think? As, as much as we travel, I think it has maybe something to do with the fact that a lot of us are transplants. Uh, so over the holidays, there's a lot of people gone. But glad for everyone who's here. I'm glad for our visitors who are here with us. Always glad when you can come and join us and worship God with us. Um, so I, I was working on something else on a, on a different message um, throughout this last week and even before that, and I, I just felt like I didn't have the time with uh, with um, all the people that we had over at our house and everything. I didn't feel like I had the time to do it justice, so I kind of changed course yesterday. So if, if it feels like we're kind of doing a slideways side here, drifting into this, uh, that's why. That's, that's um, my excuse. But I wanted to talk about the birth of Jesus um, I don't think I've ever been struck so much before with the context into which Jesus was born. Uh, the king of kings, the radiance of God's glory, as Hebrews says, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who holds, who upholds the universe with the word of his power, born as a human being, coming in the flesh, walking among us. Humbling himself, becoming of low estate, becoming a servant of men, born into our troubles. That's the title of my message this morning, Born Into Our Troubles. He didn't just sit up in heaven and say, yes, I'll help you from up here. He came down and walked among us and he, he identified with our weaknesses. And I was so struck with this. Um, with seeing the context that that God sent his son into, his only begotten, beloved son. He sent him into the world, into the humblest of conditions, into a, a scenario that was full of trouble, full of problems. Um, how many of you guys have watched the Chosen series? It's very worth your time. I, I, I highly recommend you watch it if you get a chance, if you haven't. Um, but... You, I was uh, I was kind of um, struck with the the problems that that the disciples had before Jesus came onto the scene, and I I just became aware. You know what? They were real people, and their lives were full of real problems. And Jesus walked into those problems. We can look back two thousand years, and we can we can kind of romanticize all of that, and and it it looks uh, quaint and kind of disconnected from our lives, from our real lives. But those are real people with real lives, real problems. And Jesus walked right into the middle of those problems. And he had his own set of problems in his family. And he was willing to embrace all of that and to identify with it and to be tempted in every point like we were. He was born into oppression, into a context of oppression. I'm going to just read the story of, of the birth of Jesus from Matthew. Matthew's account, uh, starting in chapter 1, let's stand as we read this. I'm going to read um, from cha chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through the end of chapter 2. <clears throat> 
chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, who was reigning over 
was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You can be seated. So the people of of Israel, God's chosen people, uh, knew that there was a Messiah coming to them. They had been promised the Messiah, someone who would establish for them an eternal kingdom. And yet here they were, hundreds of years after receiving the promises of the Messiah, here they were slaves to a Roman empire, slaves to a a heathen empire that was oppressing them and that was on a quest to bring the whole world into into subjection. Uh, in in Luke it says that that in those days there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. So uh, Caesar Augustus was taking a census of everyone who was under his his rulership, his rule. This wasn't a, a mail-in census that you just filled filled out and stuck in your mailbox. And it wasn't a website that that you went to that had a, a, what, a paperwork reduction statement says it's only going to take 15 minutes to fill out. This was a census that required you to go back to the place of your birth or to the place of your origin, where your family was from. And it was a census that was carried out for the purpose of finding out who were the subjects and how do we keep them under our control and how do we tax them most effectively. And it meant that Joseph, who was living in Nazareth at the time, with his betrothed, uh, with, with Mary as well, who was betrothed to be married to him, had to travel 90 miles south uh, to the town of Bethlehem, where Joseph was originally from. It didn't matter that Mary was almost due to deliver her first child, her firstborn son. Because Rome had given the orders, and anyone who didn't comply with these orders uh, would be crushed. Um, so they had to set out. They had to travel 90 miles south. And I know the movies show Mary riding on a donkey, right? But we, there's no evidence of that, really. It's very possible that they walked the entire 90 miles. It would have been close to a, a week journey for them. Um, and especially with her being heavily pregnant. They arrived in Bethlehem, displaced. Uh, it's not their hometown, um, looking for a place to stay. And the Bible says that there was no room for them in the inn. That The inn it may not have been like a hotel. It might have been like an extra room. Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't place for them in the spare room, and they, they needed a place to stay. And so they're in Bethlehem. They're... They don't even have a decent place to stay. They're displaced. I don't know if you've ever been in a in a village setting. Sam, I know you've been uh, in this uh, a, a lot of times where you go out to a village and you need to find a place to stay, and it's not always comfortable. You're you know far away from your home. You don't really know the people there. Uh, it's not like you can just go check into a hotel. You have to actually find a place to stay. Much more so if your wife is with you and she's expecting her first child, right? Uh, you'd want the best place possible. Well, the best place possible happens to be a stable. Mary goes into labor while they're there in in Bethlehem. And in Luke chapter 2, it says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place 
for them in the end. Now, you might expect someone to be born into these kinds of circumstances if they were a penniless peasant. But you wouldn't expect it from someone who's in a wealthy class, someone who has the means to provide something better for them, right? Like uh, Ryan and Cheryl that just had their baby, and I'm sure they searched out the best possible context for that birth, right? Like you went to, to pains to make sure that you had the best setup. You want the best environment, the best kind of care, the best attending. And you do that because you have the means to do that. And yet, here is the Son of God himself. And God has all the means to provide him the best possible scenario to be born into, right? And he intentionally arranges for him to be born displaced in a town 90 miles away from home in a stable between the animals. That's exactly what happened. I don't know if you have a romanticized view of a stable, like a, you know, kind of cozy and lots of hay around. Um, Maybe we could uh, um, kind of deconstruct that romanticized view. If you come over and uh, look at where we feed hay to our milk cow, it's not a great place, right? It's not a place where you would go to have your first child if you could help it. And yet that's what God arranged. He arranged these conditions. He could literally have had Jesus be born anywhere in the world, anywhere he wanted. And he chose this humble little town of Bethlehem in a scenario of extreme poverty. He could have had the best accommodations in Jerusalem or Rome or anywhere else in the world for that matter. But he chose to come in a humble, lowly impoverished setting it's as if he was saying loudly to all of humanity you won't find this king where you might expect you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger and how about the birth announcement when you send out your birth announcement, you want it to, you know, you want it to be in the best light possible and you want all your friends and all the important people in your life to know that that this baby is born, right? And what does God do? He announces the birth, yes, but he announces it to lowly shepherds, the the lowest class in society out in the fields, they're watching their sheep at night, and suddenly the sky lights up and an angel appears to them and says, Don't be afraid. There's born to you this day a Savior in the town of Bethlehem. Go to the town of Bethlehem. You're going to find him wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, in a feed trough of all things. And so they they get up and they run to Bethlehem and they find him there. Sure enough, just as the angel had said, he is lying in a manger, in a stable. There's no notices posted around Jerusalem. um, I know we we don't live under a monarchy here, so we don't really get to see firsthand uh, the fanfare that surrounds a royal birth, unless maybe you follow the the royal family in England. There's lots of people that do. Um, The royal births in England are announced... By a, on a, in a framed plaque that sits on a golden easel in front of Buckingham Palace. And there's thousands of people that stand out in the street when they hear the news that, that, that there's another royal baby going to be born. And they're out there 
trying to get the first-hand announcement of when this baby is going to be born, just because they happen to be the royal line. Thousands of people out in the streets, millions of people watch on television or followed on social media, waiting for the news for this baby. It's going to look like just any other baby. But it's this royal baby who's going to be born. Not so at the birth of Jesus. The announcement came to the lowest class in society, a class whose credibility might have been in question. God didn't even send an angel to the temple in Jerusalem to announce it to the high priest, right? He announced it to the low class in society. He reveals himself to the poor. He identified with our poverty. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he knew firsthand what it was to be poor in spirit. He knew what it was, what it meant to identify with the poor. Moreover, he was born into an apparent scandal, as if the conditions of poverty weren't enough of, of a stretch. God arranged for his son to be born into a scandal. Out of the blue, an angel appears to a young unmarried girl, betrothed to be married to to Joseph, and says, Hail Mary, you found favor with God. I have news for you. You're going to be pregnant. You'll bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus. Now Mary was a virgin, engaged to be married, yes, but she had kept herself chaste for her husband all her life and now suddenly this angel shows up and says mary guess what you're going to be pregnant this is scandalous right she knows the implications imagine the the fear that must have gone through her heart when she heard this news because she knew what it meant for her at best people would think that she and joseph had been sleeping together before they were married And at worst, Joseph would want to clear his name because he knew he wasn't the father's child. And he would make it public news that Mary had been unfaithful to him. She had been sleeping with someone else. And if he did that, she could be stoned according to Jewish law. It was God's law. If a woman broke her pledge of virginity, in Deuteronomy 22 it says that they were to bring that young woman out of her father's house and the men of the city would stone her with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So shall you purge evil from her midst. That's what God had said. And Mary knew this. It's conceivable for God to send this king maybe into conditions of poverty, a low-class society, but scandal? What appears to be an illegitimate child, surely he wouldn't do that. But he did. Not only was he born into our economic troubles and into our uh, social problems, he owned our scandals. He owned our moral bankruptcy. And he said, I'm willing to identify with that, even though he himself was without sin. He carried the stigma of our failures and of our sin willingly. From Joseph's point of view, Mary had obviously been unfaithful. She had failed to uphold her pledge of faithfulness during their betrothal period. And being a just man and obviously loving Mary, he did not want to shame her 
And maybe he didn't want to risk the penalty of her alleged crime. And so he decided to divorce her quietly, put her away quietly. And here God intervenes. And he comes to Joseph uh, in a dream. And he says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It's as though he's saying to Joseph, you see this mess that you think you're in the middle of? That's actually why I'm sending my son. To save his people from exactly those kinds of dilemmas. Matthew says this is... This happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Literally, God coming into our midst, not just into our midst, but into our mess, and identifying with our sinfulness so that his light could shine into our darkness so that the people sitting in darkness could see the great light. The stigma of an illegitimate pregnancy didn't just vanish when Jesus was born. It followed him throughout his life. And we see it later when religious people looked down their noses at him. When he called them out for falsely claiming to be Abraham's descendants when they didn't live like Abraham at all. That their reply was, well, we're not born of fornication. Look who's talking. We know your history. That stigma followed him, and he was willing to carry that. He was also willing to be born into a context of political tyranny. Now, you'd think that if, if you're going to be born into poverty and to low-class society, you'd at least want some political stability. But Jesus was born into a system of tyranny and oppression. He was born under the reign of Herod, who was the model tyrant. Herod would stop at nothing to secure his own power. He didn't care about anybody else. He killed some of his own wives and children because he perceived them to be a threat to his own power. Anybody who seemed to be the slightest threat would be summarily executed. In fact, the Emperor Augustus was known to to have said about Herod that it would be preferable to be Herod's sow than to be his son because the former stood a better chance of survival. He had a reputation of being ruthless and bloodthirsty and stopping at nothing to secure his own power. And God sends his son, who is the king the Deliverer, the Messiah, into that political context. Now somehow, Magi from the East had heard about a prophecy of, of a king being born to the Jews, and they had seen his star in the East. So great was their persuasion that the sign that they saw in the heavens was actually indicating the birth of the king, that they traveled hundreds of miles to, to go and find him. And they show up at Jerusalem like anyone looking for a king would do. They went to find this new king, the successor of, I guess, of the king who was in place now. So they went to Herod. Wrong place. Wrong person. Wrong circumstances. About five miles off the geographical 
target, but a million miles off of the socioeconomic target, right? They, they never guessed the context into which he was born. So they went to Herod and they said, where's this king that's been born? Because we've seen his star in the east. And when Herod heard this, it says he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And guess why? Because when Herod felt threatened, everybody was feeling threatened. Because they knew what kind of person he was. And they knew that their own lives were at risk. If there were rumors of a new king, they were afraid. Under pretense of wanting to worship this king, Herod tells the Magi to let him know when they find him so that he can come and worship him. And we know the story. They went, they found the Magi, the, the, they, they found the child, the star stopped over the house where he was. And when they found him, it says they, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. Going into the house, they saw, the, they saw Mary, um, his mother, with the child, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts befitting a king. But most importantly, they gave him their worship. They recognized that this was, in fact, a king that had been born. Instead of going back to Herod like Herod had requested, they were warned of God in a dream and they evaded him. And they left to go back to their own country by another, another way. Now Herod finds out that he had been tricked by these men. And now apparently there's a king that, had, that has been born and he's out there in Bethlehem or in the surrounding area. And he doesn't know where. And so Herod is furious. This is a threat to his authority, right? Even though by now he's an, he's an older man and this is just a baby, he feels threatened by this. And he sends, he has his soldiers go out and kill all the male children, two years old and younger. He orders them all to be slaughtered because of the rumor of a king who was born. Even though he knows that this is obviously a prophecy that God has given, and he has enough respect for the prophecy and for the signs that accompanied it, that he thinks it's a real threat. He decides that he can stop the, the promised king from rising. And so he orders all these babies to be killed. Jeremiah had prophesied about this. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. This was originally a prophecy that was given in regards to the slaughter of, the, of Israel's children when they went into captivity to Babylon around 586 B.C. But it found its most acute fulfillment here in Bethlehem, this little town, not far from the burying place of, of Rachel, who was known as the mother of Israel. And now they had the, the fresh wounds of trouble that plagued God's chosen people over the centuries. Where was God? Why were his chosen people going through all of this? What they didn't know that in their midst was the deliverer. He chose to be born into these very circumstances. He didn't stop the tyranny and the oppression. He was born into it. He said, I'm willing to go there. 
That's where I'm willing to live. So God warned Joseph in a dream before Herod was able to carry out his slaughter, and he fled about 65 kilometers to Egypt to, with the child and his mother, and they stayed there for, for three years, again as foreigners, in a strange land this time. They lived there for three years until God warned him, God told him in, an, in another dream that the, those who sought the life of the child are dead. And so he, he returned to Bethlehem, but on his return he found out that even though Herod was dead, his son, um, Archelaus, was reigning in, in Judea, and he was probably as bad as Herod in that he was uh, noted for tyranny, murder, instability, um, and he was thought to probably be insane, maybe as a result of close family intermarriages. Um, so kind of like a um, another dictator, just the successor of his father, over that same area. And so he was afraid to stay there, and, and God told him in a dream, yes, go, go back up to Nazareth. And so you can imagine the situation if, if you're coming back with your um, five-year-old son and all the other five-year-olds who would have been five years old by now have been killed, uh, you would definitely be suspect if you go back to, to Bethlehem. And so he went back up to Nazareth. As I looked at this story, I kept, I kept saying, why? Why would God bring his son into these kinds of circumstances? Why not into a better context, something that's a little more stable and safe and um, not, not, so, not so risky? He's bringing his king into, it looks like, the worst circumstances possible. And so he takes, Joseph takes Mary and his child back up to Nazareth. And Nazareth to us sounds like a great place, right? That's where Jesus is from. It's also kind of been romanticized, but not for the Jews. It wasn't a great place. This was the place where the, the Roman garrison for, the, for northern Judea had um, settled. And so a lot of people left Nazareth and those who stayed were kind of regarded with contempt because they were seen as being complicit with the, the Roman occupation. And the, the Jews, um, by and large, were zealous about staying separate from the Gentiles. But Joseph takes his son, the son of God, up to Nazareth and he becomes a Nazarene. This region was also under the rule of one of Herod's sons, um, Antipas, but he was a more capable leader than his brother in the south. Um, but from God's perspective, this was the perfect place for his son to be from, to, to grow up in. He would be known as a Nazarene, not a good look for someone who claimed to be a king. In fact, later we know the story of, of when uh, Jesus was introduced to Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, can any good come from Nazareth? They knew that, that that was an unlikely place for a king to come from. Jesus was also born into a broken family line. If you're like me, you uh, get to the first chapter in Matthew, and you kind of skim over the genealogy there. But there's actually some significant names that appear there. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You remember that scandal from the book of Genesis? 
where Tamar prostituted herself and um, bore offspring to Judah. There's Jeconiah, a king of Judah, who God said should be considered childless because even though he had children, his descendants would be cut off from the throne. And apparently had Jesus been a physical descendant of Joseph, he would have been disqualified to be king over Israel. He was a legal son of Joseph, but he was a physical son of Mary, who was a descendant of David. There was Rahab, who was a foreigner and a former prostitute. There was Ruth, also a foreigner, a Moabitess, uh, another scandalous line that had, had arisen through Um, incest. There was Bathsheba who had committed adultery with David. God intentionally put these names into the genealogy of Jesus. He could have arranged for his son to be born into a family with stellar reputation, but he didn't. He chose to identify with our mess, with our brokenness, with our history of sin. In every regard, he was willing to make himself of no reputation. He was born into our suffering. His birth was just the beginning of a life of hardship, disgrace, being misunderstood, falsely accused, wrongfully blamed, villainized. And he did it all because he wanted to become one of us. He didn't have to choose this context, but he did because he wanted to be one of us. Emmanuel, God with us in the most literal sense of the word. Not just God among us, but God with us. God in the middle of our troubles. God in the middle of our brokenness, of our sin, of our shame. He identified with us, with our weaknesses. Hebrews 2 says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And a little further down it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That relationship, that access that you and I have to God depends on the fact that Jesus is willing to humble himself and be born into this very context. He was willing to be born into a a context of brokenness and sin and scandal and a messed up family line, and tyranny, and oppression, and slavery, and injustice, and false accusations, because he wanted to identify with you and me. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
And in chapter 5, it says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Do you see the purpose in all of this? You see, it wasn't just to show off. It was actually to identify with us, to become one of us in the most real sense of the word. He's still with us. He's here in our weakness, in our mess. He's here in 2020. And he's going to be here in 2021, regardless of what comes our way, regardless of the disappointments or hardships or whatever we face. He is there in the most literal sense of the word. When Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, he said, in the world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He wasn't just saying that from an outsider's perspective. He was saying that from the perspective of someone who had walked right through the middle of all those troubles and who had identified with our weaknesses, who had tasted the shame of our sinfulness, who had walked the very path that we walk and without sin. That's why he said, I don't give you the kind of peace that the world gives. I give you my peace. My peace is one that will carry you right through the middle of those trials, right through the middle of suffering. And because he humbled himself and was willing to become a servant of men, was willing to suffer, was willing to become of low estate, it says Philippians says because of that, God has given him a name that is above every name. He's exalted because of his humility. Do you realize that this is actually a characteristic of God? That God is humble? This wasn't just, this wasn't just a temporary stance that God took. It's actually his nature. He is humble. He was willing to become man. To be made flesh. To humble himself. Because that's what he's like. And he's calling us to identify with him now in his death. In his suffering. To be willing to live the kind of life that he lived. To humble ourselves. To be of low estate. To be a servant to men. He invites us to participate with him in his death. So that we can experience his life, so that we can be glorified with him. If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Looking out at 2021, we don't know what's going to come our way, but we know that there's someone who walked the very road that we walk. He was willing to identify with our weaknesses to become one of us. And we know that he's going to be with us even to the end.